0: to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care.
1: This is Dr. Garrett Coyne. I'm one of the Integrated Cardiothoracic Surgery Residents at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. I'm here today with uh, Dr. Robert Cormos. He's the Brack G. Hatler Chair of Cardiothoracic Transplantation at the University of Pittsburgh, and he's also uh, has a dual appointment in the Department of Bioengineering. Uh, Dr. Cormos, thanks for being with us today. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Garrett. <clears throat> so we're gonna have a discussion today about ethics and how those interactions with industry play out uh, within the field of cardiothoracic surgery. You know, as we all know, we rely heavily upon the developments and products produced by industry to help our patients every day. Um, I'm just wondering if you could give an overview of how, how you see the global relationship between cardiothoracic surgeons and uh, our industry colleagues.
0: So, in the broad definition of industry, this would include pharmaceutical companies, biotech companies, device manufacturers, and in general, <clears throat> their relationship with us is primarily to provide evidence uh, for educational purposes, especially as it relates to therapies that might involve the use of their products. Now one has to be a little bit careful uh, when one is asking for real evidence. And so part of part of the relationship with industry, although one keeps an open mind about the information that they're bringing to the table, part of the challenge is making sure that what they're pro- providing you with is, in fact, evidence-based uh, information. And that means it comes from peer-reviewed journals, it comes from articles, position papers, policy statements, and things that have been published in recognized um, sources of academic material. Uh, What we tend not to appreciate uh, is specific data on a specific product that isn't backed by that type of evidence. So it's data that they've collected on their own from individual surgeons, from small series and pilot studies. One needs to be very careful about looking at that kind of information, but the the benefit of working with industry is they can be a good source of information on a particular disease state or a therapy. So it's it's it's, it's has its benefits. I think one also um, needs to realize that if if a new technology, new biotech treatment or a new drug therapy is something that we're looking at becoming a user of then it's important to understand side effects, it's important to understand indications and in how that product is utilized and that industry can do very well again as long as they show you the published data. The third area that is is actually quite important is you need to decide as a surgeon if you want to be someone who utilizes technology once it's been approved by the FDA, or do you want to be part of clinical trials and clinical studies, uh, and if that's the case, then the relationship with industry becomes uh, more intimate because they have to educate you about the product, they have to educate you about the use, there are uh, specific forms that need to be filled out, and there are certain rules about clinical trials and how you, the conduct of those clinical trials and the relationship with your clinical trials team in the hospital, the nurses that collect the data, et cetera. And that material has to be shown to you and that education has to come from the industry partner. So I think, again, there's, there's benefits for information, there's benefits in education and in, in most of us, as we look at our peers around the country, find that if there's new therapies coming out we want to be part of those clinical trials to be on the, uh, on the sort of frontier yeah. of development of new things so that relationship can be well established as well.
1: So in our everyday practices uh, cardiothoracic surgeons and cardiothoracic residents um, in the OR on a given day we can be confronted by many people from industry We'll start there, what, what's the best way to interact with these these, these, these individuals well, and, and get the information that they bring while at the same time maintaining some degree of echo poise?
0: Well, <clears throat> so the, the first thing that's important is that most hospitals, including our own, have specific policies relating to attendance at procedures by industry representatives. So <clears throat> there is a process Um, that usually goes through the purchasing department, particularly at our place, that um, requires industry representatives to sign in to be accredited, to set foot in the institution. Once they've gone through certain procedures, and that includes things like getting proper inoculations, demonstrating that they're free of communicable disease, etc., then there are education modules that they have to do to allow them to come into the hospital. Once that is done, the minute they would like to participate, say, in a, in a clinical trial uh, operation, they have to sign in, so they can't just come into the operating room. They, they have to log in through a computer, given a special tag that identifies them. Um, if industry representatives want to talk to residents or students or faculty, they cannot come into those offices without being invited. So um, if they come with an idea, a presentation, then that requires actually interaction with one of the faculty members who then invites them to come, but they can't just show up at your doorstep or they can't cold call you, send you an email say we'd like to present this therapy or present this data. So there has to be a formal invitation. Okay. Once that is done, then I think... Um, you know the the exchange of information can be take place in a number of different forms. You can have industry come to rounds. Uh, they can present materials. The, the The thing that's critical is that they have to identify themselves and they have to identify mm-hmm. that what they're presenting is on behalf of an industry and complete know, disclosure. Yeah, it has Definitely. to be transparent. Yeah. So, given that,
1: what are some of the rules or guidelines that residents and as we transition to you know, attending and faculty roles should abide by when, when interacting with people from industry? I mean, that, that has changed significantly over the years, both as, as far as the, the norms have gone as well as the rules and regulations surrounding those interactions. What, what's, what, what's your view on
0: that? Well, um, so I think there's a couple important things. For, first of all, Um, if an industry partner wants to come in and provide educational material, that has to actually be cleared by most institutions continuing education groups, and they want to see what's being presented. They want to understand the topic. They want to look at the extent of the educational uh, effort. Um, The industry partner cannot support uh, things like food. Uh Um, They can't bring in coffee and snacks and luncheons, that can't be done on site, mm-hmm. it's a, it's not allowed. Um, similarly if um, they are coming to provide any kind of support for educational activities, uh, say grand rounds or conferences, you can't do that, industry cannot support those things. Again, they can be invited in to give a presentation, but they can't support any type of faculty meetings or grand rounds or, or research meetings, that, that's not something that can be done. Uh, off-site, if a uh, industry is having some type of symposium, um, we could attend that. Um, they cannot pay for your attendance if, if there's an attendance fee to attend that symposium. They cannot pay for your attendance. Uh, they can't cover your transportation. They can't cover your food. The fact of the matter is that many of those meetings will have refreshments and things like that. If the value of those meet generally accepted standards, um, and by that I mean, you know, it's not an exorbitant meal, but you're supplying what you would normally get at a, a conference, yeah. you can you can partake in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not a problem. But you cannot, uh, they cannot pay for dinners. Uh, you can't have a dinner or a meal somewhere and say, let's get all the residents together and we're going to go out to dinner and you're going to hear a lecture on a certain therapy. That That's not allowed. So modest support of food at meetings, that, that can happen. Um, if they have an educational symposium, which many companies will do, and they would want to offer residents the opportunity, for example, to attend those educational symposium, which... Can be again beneficial. Um, there are a couple rules. Uh, first of all, they cannot invite specific people. So they can tell your chair or your program director that we're going to have this meeting. You choose the people you want to send. And if your division chair or your program director chooses the people to send and they say we'll take two, that's fine. Mm-hmm. They cannot pay you personally for travel. Or lodging. Uh, again, through the continuing education and through the chair, they can provide um, non-targeted funding to the division or to the chair that can be used as a resource for your travel or for your lodging, and they can uh, they can use that money for that. But you cannot target it for specific individuals. And then the money for that trip would come from your division or your department. So it is. It can be done. Again, if you're going to those kinds of meetings off-site, um, modest support of meals, food, that kind of thing is acceptable. It is not acceptable to have lavish dinners and things like that. That 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 you can't do. Um, let, let's say for faculty, if we're invited to go to a meeting to give a talk, let's say they've asked us to give a presentation at a national meeting that a company is holding an educational meeting. There are, again, a few rules about that. Um, we can, again, be supported if we're, giving, if we're just going to the meeting. They can't pay us. Mm-hmm. They can't support our travel. They can't support our food. If, however, we're presenting at the meeting, we're a participant, then, again, they can provide funding up to about $2,500 for travel and lodging that would come to our division mm-hmm. that can then use that money to pay to for that to support for that so it's allowed but the key is that we have to develop the material so the company cannot say we would like you to give a talk on the use of some device and we want you to talk about the complications that are seen with this device then they can't give you a set of slides even if they take their name off it and say here's what we think would fit well in that talk why don't you present this talk that is absolutely not allowed what you can do is give them an outline of what you're going to talk about and they could say yeah it looks good or not but make some suggestions but but they cannot control the content we have to control that content Mm -hmm. that's absolutely no option on that excellent
1: and we talked about some of the those are those are some of the rules and regulations surrounding our our interactions with industry Um, another important part of interactions between cardiothoracic surgeons and industry is development and developing new products new technologies and innovating the field and I think there's a very important link between industry and and surgeons in that regard and so I want to talk about that specifically for a little bit how and cardiothoracic surgeons work with industry to develop a new technology? What are what are some of the, the norms of practice and practice and, and some of the limits as well to those types of interactions?
0: So, you know, these are done generally through consulting agreements. Again, if we want to be a consultant to industry, there are a couple things that have to be carefully taken care of. One of those is a non-disclosure agreement. So there has to be a, uh, in in general, if we're going to give industry some information or opinion on something, we want a disclosure agreement that protects our giving them that information. Mm -hmm. Similarly, they're going to want themselves protected if they give you some information. So these non-disclosure agreements generally come in the form of what they call a bi-directional non-disclosure. Again, there are different forms of this and the university may, for example, allow you to consult, but they will not allow you to use the address of the university or your position at the university on any of the documents. So you have to put your home address and you have to put your own personal contact information. Um, There are some situations where they will allow that and, and how that's determined is sort of complicated based on the relationship with that industry and the institution. What, what you can do is develop a consulting agreement, for example, and we're allowed as physicians here to receive up to $10,000 a year from any individual company total uh-huh. for consulting. But what has to be really clearly stated is the statement of work. What are they expecting from you and what are you supplying? And all of that has to... Be cleared by your chair or the dean. So, that relationship and exactly what you're going to provide has to be very clearly laid out. So, it can't be that I'm on a medical advisory board and um, it doesn't have how often you're meeting during the year, Mm -hmm. it doesn't have what the product is out of that meeting, what's delivered. Uh, so, So, nowadays, what used to be quite common is these nebulous. I'm on their medical advisory board and we're going to give you two grand for the travel hotel. That you can't do can't anymore. Do that. You have to be very clear about the expectations and the deliverables. And again, that goes to the School of Health Sciences. Usually your dean or your chair looks at that contract and has to sign off on it. You can then go ahead into that agreement. Um, and those consulting agreements can change depending on the university's perception of what you know, what's happening as you, as you go on. But um, the, the second part of that is actually establishing a relationship, for example, in doing research. And again, it varies from university to university as to how much is allowable. The University of Pittsburgh has become much more flexible in that relationship. In the sense that, let's say you want to co-develop something or an industry partner comes to you and says, here, I have a product, but I want to make it better. And we want to test this little bit that's going to make it better. Yeah. Then they're coming to the university with their own IP. You can enter into a contract relationship to do work for them in a lab <laughs> to test that. A couple rules. If... The university is very clear about publishing rights. You cannot restrict publishing of research that you do. So if a company has in their contract that they reserve the right to approve any manuscripts written on this research, the university generally will not allow that if there are students involved in the research. Mm -hmm. If you can demonstrate that there are no students and residents aren't students, by the way. But if there are university students involved, then the, the company cannot restrict them from publishing. Up. If there are not, then usually you, you can get by that, that restriction. Mm-hmm. But, um, and so if they come with IP, that IP goes back with the company. Mm-hmm. If the university employee, which we all are, develops something, that belongs to that employee in the university in in the process of that research. Uh-huh. On the other hand, if it's assumed to be co-developed, then the university will claim that it has rights to ownership, but the company has the right of first refusal of that ownership. So if they say, we're going to buy it and it's ours, we could pay you a license fee or whatever, but mm-hmm. if we, we want that, then it goes with them. If they say they don't want it, then it can go with the university. So there is that that line in the co-developed areas that it, it can be decided by the university employee in the company as to whether they want it or whether you're happy to give it to the company. So besides consulting, you can actually do research. And in fact, the university is now in its new, in our university, and not all of them are like that are actually encouraging faculty to work with industry, and the university is actually in a position now where it will rent out labs and rent out equipment that the company may not have, and allow them to use that university material for a price. Mm-hmm. That never used to be available or, or allowed, but it is now. And it, it's also in, in the sort of this new era of trying to develop these partnerships The industry-sponsored research is being promoted heavily here, both at the University of Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon University. So industry can come in and say, we're going to sponsor this research, we're going to use your people, use your labs, and we're going to pay you for that. And that was never allowed, but it it now is. Again, stipulations are complex. and It's in the details of how (laughs) you write the contract. But that can be done. Great. I guess the final thing to
1: touch on is, I think it's important that we have these relationships with industry, but it's also important that we properly disclose these relationships with industry. I wonder if you could touch a little bit right now on just how how you see our role in completely disclosing these, these co- conflicts of interest, essentially, to uh, both our patients and our peers
0: when we conduct research as well. So, you know, the, the issue of... Conflict of interest has become a hot one, obviously, as as the government looks more closely at uh, the relationships that physicians have and the money that physicians get from industry to do research. There have been a lot of high-profile cases in the last two or three years where very prominent scientists have been censured because even though their articles and their research were published in some very reputable journals they did not disclose the fact that they received money for that research from an, an industry you you will not necessarily be hindered from publishing so most journals ask for conflict of interest so you have to upfront state even in abstracts that you're sending to societies you have to disclose in most cases there are various limits but in general the rule again is about $10,000 if if your support is one level where it's about 5 grand one level is about 10 grand but if you have that kind of support either for research within your group or personal support for travel and lodging when you go to meetings that needs to be disclosed and the trigger is different in each society If you are a member of a society and want to hold a position in that society, you have to disclose those relationships. If you go to meetings in that society as a member of a board of directors or a a member of a task force or workforce, for example, for the STS, Mm -hmm. at the beginning of every meeting, you must disclose any relationships that may affect your decision or voting in those Mm -hmm. things. So you have to do that. Um, As you know, NIH any federal funding agencies all require these conflict of interest statements. So yeah, I think it's important to be, a, to be on the safe side. Most of us will claim anything over about $5,000. Um, under that, you're probably okay because you don't have a strong relationship with industry at that point. But if it's anything over that, I think the safe thing is always to claim. Now, many of us just take the attitude that we are not accepting any money, any of those reimbursements, any mm-hmm. of those funding for travel, rooms, lodging, meals, we just don't accept it. Yeah. And you can be an unpaid consultant, mm-hmm. which many of us do, but then it gets you out of that problem because you can upfront state you have no conflict. No of interest. conflict. Now, industry is bound to report any money that it gives us. And that is on a national website. Uh, it's available for the public to see. It's real time. Uh, it's about six, eight months behind, but it's real time in the sense it's updated. So as soon the information. Or, yeah. And you will see the funding for any physician in the country. Uh, and they have it divided up into research funding and reimbursements that you get for things. And what the universities and the most... Societies and and things are involved, are interested in, is not so much the research funding, because you're going to claim that if you're writing a paper anyway, but the other funding that you get for giving talks, lectures, traveling, that kind of stuff on behalf of the company. That is what they really look at.
1: Very good. You know, I think we've covered a lot of ground here. I wanted to finish up. You know, you've, you've been working with industry for quite some time, very successfully throughout your career partnerships what has been one of the most difficult interactions you've had to have with industry in that time ethically speaking
0: Um, so I think the the biggest is that it's it's unquestionable that industry although it's trying very hard to separate its marketing from its science teams goals are sometimes not easy to separate and they get them mixed up and you have to be extremely careful you have to recognize when marketing is coming at you and it's no longer science because you're talking patient safety you know, ultimately what you're doing here is to protect patients. Um, the biggest thing that I found that's frustrating is that as much as industry tries it cannot avoid rewarding sites that use their products. Yeah. There is just a tendency to come to sites and provide the clinical trials and provide the, the access to new technology. And, uh, you know, they'll, they'll provide uh, a benefit, for example, to do training on site. And they tend to... There's been a tendency to reward not based on benefit that your site brings to that table but the fact that you're a, a user. user of their product and that is a very difficult thing and i've been extremely upfront uh, with them when that i detect that I just laid it out that we're, we're not getting into a relationship where there's a quid pro quo that if i do this we're going to utilize your therapy it, it, you cannot you have to stand your ground on and uh, that's probably one of the most difficult things to do because we all want to be part of research and all want to be part of innovation. And you have to sort of resist, resist
1: that. That's a great answer. I think you know, That's a great way to end this this, this conversation. You know, the whole point of both, both cardiothoracic surgeons and industry working towards these relationships is to help the patient. And I think as long as we keep them first
0: and foremost, you know, that's the most important thing. Yeah, I mean, what what one guideline is is always that when industry shells out money in the term of marketing, that money ends up having to be reimbursed through the price of the product. So ultimately, we lose, you know. And so that's that's one of the things that the federal government is trying to prevent is this inflation of the cost of of technology and drugs because the marketing aspect costs so much. So that's part of what they're trying to do is to break that cycle.
1: Well, Dr. Cormos, thank you very much. That was a great conversation. I think that's all the time we have for now. Uh, We'd like to thank everyone for joining us uh, for this uh, TSRA podcast, and we'll see you next time.